Good morning. Christ is risen. Indeed, that's right. And that is what we're focusing on for this Easter season. Now, if you're new to all of this, just so you know, today is the, anybody know what day of Easter it is? It's the sixth Sunday, which, and the 36th day. Easter lasts for 50 days. It starts on Easter Sunday, and it goes all the way to Pentecost Sunday. And this is 50 days that the church gives special celebration to the central nerve of Christianity. Christ has risen from the dead. And therefore, death has, as Wilson said, one marvelous loss on its record. It doesn't have a perfect record anymore. And that one time it lost is proof to us that it is beatable, that there can be a world without death. Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, death has been defeated. And those who are in Christ when they die, they have the hope of glory, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says the hope of glory, glory there doesn't mean like you're going to shine and be all like uh, immaterial like Gabriel's hand over here. The hope of glory in Romans 8 is that we will share in the glory of Jesus. And in Romans 8, the glory of Jesus is with a resurrected body, he's ruling the physical earth. That we get to be a part of that. We get to share in that glory with Jesus. That is, those who die in Christ have the tremendous gift of dying with the certain hope, not just that they're going to get to rest, not just that they're going to suddenly be in heaven in the presence of Jesus, resting and seeing him, but they have the certain hope that they're going to wake up again with a body in a physical world, with a transformed body. And so for the Sundays of Easter, we're turning our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the longest sustained reflection in all of the Bible on this thing that have been on the future resurrection of the dead. And we've been going through this chapter uh, paragraph by paragraph. And today we come to verse 29, verses 29 to 34. And I think... It's easiest to understand this paragraph if we ignore the beginning up front, that's the confusing bit, and we instead focus smack dab in the very middle of it. And I've realized in studying this that it's once you get the middle of the paragraph down, the, the opening sentence kind of gets easy, okay? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. Paul is continuing a thought here. If the dead are not raised at all, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts um, at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and tomorrow we die. Now, look, Paul wrote this letter, we're, we're pretty sure, in, eight, in the spring of AD 55. So around this time in, in the year 55. And he, and he was in Ephesus when he wrote the letter. And he writes it to the Corinthians. And, and in Ephesus... There was this massive coliseum. It held the same number of people as JMU football stadium. It held 20,000, uh, 25,000 people. It was a little bit bigger than JMU stadium. 
And that was in Ephesus where Paul was. And he's writing to the Corinthians. They would have immediately known he's referring to the gladiator games. They had been going on in Ephesus for a little over 100 years at this point. And they had probably the second largest coliseum in all of the ancient world dedicated to this. So when Paul says, I fought beasts at Ephesus, he's clearly referencing this brutal and popular tradition that, that was a part of where he was at the time in Ephesus. Now, I've not ever been there. I haven't seen the Ephesian Colosseum, but I've been to Rome, and I've seen the Roman Colosseum, and it's pretty interesting the way it's built. You can imagine it. Just imagine our, col- our Colosseum. <laughs> that was a faux pas, wasn't it? <laughs> Depending on which side of the faculty at JMU you're on, I'm sure you might. Imagine our, our giant arena. Um, in, in, in the Colosseums in Ephesus and in Rome, there was a floor, but under the floor, there were a bunch of rooms. And in Rome, if you go to the Colosseum there today, only about a third of it or a fourth of it has a floor. The rest of it, the floor is gone. And so you can stand and you can look down and see all the rooms, all these little chambers and passageways that were under the floor of the original Colosseum. That's where they kept the wild animals. That's where they starved them and kept them. And they had this series of um, kind of cages with ropes and pulleys that they could winch these cages up and a trap door in the floor would open up and the hungry animal would walk out to dinner, you know. And um, so just imagine standing in a stadium like our Bridgeport Stadium and imagine it filled with people. Um, interestingly, Ephesus had a population of about 50,000, and half the city would go to, to the events, all right? So we can imagine this. Imagine it's filled with people. Um, half the city is packed in and shown up for this um, spectacle of blood and death. Imagine the gladiators, slaves, trained for the moment. You know what they do the night before? They eat a last meal, knowing that the following day, hardly any of them, if any, will still be alive. Now think of what Paul says in verse 32 about fighting wild beasts at Ephesus. Now that's strange because we know Paul was not a gladiator. Uh, We know that he had never physically been involved in gladiator games. He couldn't have been. He was a Roman, all sorts of issues. He's speaking metaphorically here. Something happened to him in Ephesus that um, for him it was like fighting wild beasts. Some people think he's referring to a huge moral struggle that he had gone through. Maybe he was talking about the wild animals of temptation that come up from the floor of our psyches and our lives to devour us. I, I could understand that metaphor. Can you? Other people think he's referring to some sort of spiritual warfare. Remember at the end of the letter to the Ephesians, which he wrote about the same time, he has a huge section on spiritual warfare. So maybe he's talking about the weapons of prayer and fasting. I think he's referring to something else. Um, I think he's referring to the massive opposition that we know he experienced when he preached in Ephesus, 
We know that when Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus, it provoked enormous pushback. Many people felt like Paul's preaching was too political, that he was crossing the line, that the gospel was a threat to the politics of Ephesus. It was, and they got mad about it. It's hard for us to relate to that one, I know. And then there were all the people in Ephesus who felt the economic sting of his preaching. The gospel, the good news that in God, in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. This had enormous economic implications that Paul provoked in his preaching and it unsettled the settled business class of Ephesus. And the gospel also challenged the religious establishment and the religious views of the Ephesians. If Jesus was the world's true Lord, then the other gods and goddesses at Ephesus, whose worship was woven into the economy, into the cultural life, into the family lives. If Jesus was indeed the world's true Lord, then there was a whole lot of popular holidays, a whole lot of regular get-togethers, a whole lot of way of being a part of the community that you could no longer be a part of. If he was the world's true Lord, then those gods and goddesses were suddenly downgraded. Now, you can read all about this in Acts chapter 19, where it describes the riot that resulted from the political class, the business class, and the economic class suddenly getting together and saying, this won't do. And it was this massive riot, and it rose up, and it pushed and drove Paul into the Colosseum, where his life was, at, was under threat. And as far as Paul was concerned in that moment, it was like being a gladiator facing the horde of wild beasts with nothing but the weapons of the gospel. That's the point Paul is making in our passage. Listen to verse 32 again. What do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, I'm going to do what the gladiators did. Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You see, Paul's point is that if this thing he goes through all the time because he's a Christian, this suffering, he suffers from family, he suffers from friends, he ticks people off about economics, he ticks people off about politics, he ticks people off about religion. If this thing that carrying the gospel in him does, if he keeps suffering because of it, and all he's going to get after death is no hope of the resurrection, then he's going to be like the gladiators. It's not worth it. He's going to eat and drink and make merry tonight before the big show, knowing that tomorrow the end is the end. Remember, in the Bible, human bodies matter. They are not merely disposable prisons for the soul. Remember that Paul was an Israelite. And throughout the Old Testament, which Paul knew like the back of his hand, throughout the Old Testament, when ancient Israelites wrestled with goodness and justice, and they thought about God, they ultimately came to insist the only way goodness and justice matters is if the dead are raised. That was our passage in Isaiah 26. 
There were two views in that passage. One is a view of pagan religions that doesn't have a resurrection of the dead. And the other was Israel wrestling with how does justice count? How can we believe in justice and goodness? And Israel came to the discernment. The only way justice and goodness can be sustained in matter is if our bodies are raised. So remember, always remember in the Bible, resurrection is not about some soul living after death. It is about a soul getting a new body after death. Those who are in Christ, when they die, they are alive. They are alive. There is life after death for the soul. You get it if you're a Christian. But it's a waiting and it's a resting until the new body, the new heavens and the new earth. So back to our passage in 1 Corinthians. Do you notice that Paul doesn't even contemplate the idea that Christianity is good news if there's no resurrected body? He doesn't even contemplate the idea there might be a wonderful, glorious, non-bodily existence after death. Most people at the time he was writing believed in that. They believed that once you die, your body was gone, decomposed, dissolved into the earth, and you weren't ever going to get a bodily life again. That was the end. Death was the end. There was nothing to look forward to after that. And Paul is saying, yeah, I agree with you. If there is nothing to look forward to with regard to our bodies, it's not worth it. Be an Epicurean. Eat, drink. When you die, it's over. So once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30, if the dead are not raised at all, why am I in danger every hour? I wouldn't do it, he says. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which, by the way, is an oath. This is the common way in that time to make an oath. He's saying, hand on the Bible, I swear. That's the, the mantra for it. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now look, all of the other confusing little comments in this passage, in this paragraph, make sense if you recognize they're all making the same point. This is just an ad hominem argument. He's not building a logical argument. He's just throwing out there a bunch of things. If there's no resurrection of our bodies, death is the end. There's nothing to look forward to. Be a hedonist. The future resurrection of the dead is the central nerve of Christian living. So much of what we do as Christians just does not make sense if there's no resurrection. For example, the first sentence in the paragraph, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Yeesh. Yeah, that's one of the weird ones in the Bible, isn't it? It's one of those deeply puzzling verses in the Bible. And there's a lot of debate about what it's referring to. Um, but the meaning of it is not debated. Everybody agrees on what it means. They just don't know what it's referring to, to mean that. There are three main options for what it's referring to. Technically, I think there's about 13 total options that over the centuries, the church and scholars have identified, but only three of them seem to get much traction as the centuries go by. 
Um, here they are. The majority view is that Paul is referring to some kind of vicarious baptism for the dead. In other words, it seems that the Corinthians um, got together and said, holy moly, some, some of our friends who are Christians didn't get baptized. They needed to be baptized. Here, baptize me on their behalf. Because I know they were Christians, and my baptism on their behalf will be like a symbol, a sign, testifying that they, they died as Christians. A second view that the church has recognized as a strong contender for what this verse is, is, is referencing is that being baptized on behalf of the dead refers to non-Christians who, after the death of a close loved one who was a Christian, said, I, I want their life. Um, they were Christians. Look at this amazing life they lived. And their life has now convinced me, and I'm converting, and I want to be with them in the new heavens and the earth. So if, if my mom died and she was a Christian, and, I, and that event moves me to convert because of her life and because I want to be with her in the new heavens and the earth, then I'm being baptized because of the dead. And that preposition can be translated in that way. A third primary option, and this, the third one is the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, it's it's because, primarily because it was a unanimous view of the Greek church fathers, the church fathers who read this in its original language and interpreted it in its moment, who knew Corinth, knew the moment. Their view is that the word dead here is, is the way Paul uses the word dead when he's talking about baptism. He says to Christians um, who, uh, who are being baptized, before you're baptized, you are dead in your sins. And so the word dead here is a reference to our state, unsaved. We're dead in our sins. And that by saying those who've been baptized for the dead, there's actually some weird things going on with prepositions here and articles that it can be translated, my dead body is being baptized. You are buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And that this is just some weird, outdated way that Paul is referring to Christian baptism. That's where I land, I think. But here's the deal. Whatever conclusion you come about the specific reference, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I suffer because of the resurrection of the dead. You do a thing that, and my suffering makes no sense apart from the resurrection of the dead. Your baptisms make no sense apart. So what he's doing is he's pointing out two common practices and saying, look, when it comes to Christianity, so much of it just does not make sense apart from the resurrection of the dead. And once you see this, it, it gets simple that Paul is saying the same thing in two different ways. Christian baptism and Christian suffering do not make sense if there's no resurrection of the dead. Now look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Or if you were like me growing up and your parents made you memorize this verse, bad company corrupts good character. This is a quote from a Greek playwright named Menander. And Paul is saying, ironically, he's using um, a Greek poet. He's saying, hey, you Corinthians, you ought to be able to show and tell the truth of the one living God to your neighbors. But instead, you're allowing their worldview to distort and erase a central Christian belief, the resurrection of the dead. We saw in verses 1 through 11 that the resurrection of the dead is central to the gospel. 
We saw in verses 12 through 19, it's central to the Christian faith. We saw in verses 20 through 28, it's central to Christian doctrine. We're seeing here in verses 29 to 34, it's central to Christian practice. And yet the Corinthians lost it. They lost sight of the promise. They lost their grip on a core doctrine. They cut a central nerve of Christian living. And notice how they did this. They accidentally absorbed the worldview of the surrounding culture when it came to life after death. They allowed the influence of the surrounding culture and the ideas it promotes about life after death to seep in and erode away this central truth. And here's the irony. 20 years after the resurrection, it didn't take long. So Paul says in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And he knows he's using strong words. These are weighty words. I say this to your shame. The Corinthians had lost their grip on something that was so core, it deserved such a weighty rebuke. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And this did not mean simply that he had gone to heaven or that he was God. Both of those things are true. And the early church definitely believed them, but they believed as well that Jesus was resurrected, that he came back to life in his body, and that this was the first fruits of the new creation. This was Jesus going before us, that we ourselves will be raised with a new transformed bodily life at the time of the Lord's return. And Paul had a sharp rebuke for the Corinthians when he confronted them for losing hold on this. And by the way, he only gets this tetchy one other time. It's back in chapter 6, verse 5, when he's confronting the Corinthians on their ex economic and sexual practices. It's the only other time he says to your shame. So there's plenty in here, economics, sex, resurrection of the body. There's plenty in here for wherever you fall on the conservative to liberal spectrum, right? Now, what about us? We need to see that losing our grip on the resurrection of the dead is not because of the Bible. It's because of the influence of our culture. The church in the West, like the Corinthians, has struggled to keep the future resurrection of the body as of central importance to the Christian faith. And as a result, we have turned baptism too often into a symbol for a soul being saved. And not a reminder every time we do it that this body is going to be raised. When we baptize our babies, this body is not the end at death. And as a result of the church in the West losing its grip on the central nerve, we have a diminished capacity in the West to suffer for the gospel. We have failed to effectively counteract the cynical nihilism and self-indulgent pleasure-seeking that fills our culture. Our teenagers struggle with depression and suicide at an epidemic rate, and it is partly related to our loss of emphasis 
on the resurrection of the body as the hope of glory. As, and our adults struggle to resist the eat, drink, and be merry indulgences of a culture that doesn't have a view of the glorious bodily life after death. We got to get our pleasure now. We don't hope for it and long for it in the day to come. And we have sinned in our refusal to deal with environmental threat with our captivities to progressive politics on the left and conservative politics on the right because we have forgotten the centrality of the resurrection of the dead to the gospels. Because of that, our politics have gotten too small. And the list goes on and on. Our secular culture has shrunken our capacity to imagine the new creation. Our 19th and 20th century hymnody with songs like I'll Fly Away and so many verses and so many of our favorite hymns have made us focus our hopes on heaven and lose our focus on the resurrection of the body. Western medieval Christian paintings like the Sistine Chapel and literature like Dante's Inferno have slowly done to us what the surrounding pagan philosophies did to the Corinthians to our shame. They have made us forget that the resurrection of the body is the central nerve of the Christian faith. And so whether it's our old people among us insisting we keep singing, I'll fly away, or the young people among us trying to manifest the things they want. Too many Christians in the West have followed the Corinthians in losing their grip on the resurrection. But the good news is that we can regain the grip. That's the whole point of the paragraph. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, we can wake up from our drunken stupor. Now, how do we do this? Well, he says right there in verse 34, first we need to repent. Stop sinning. There are ways we're acting because we don't value the body. Because we think that this body's just going to go away and that's the end of it. So whether it's abortion or sexual immorality or economic exploitation or environmental destruction, wherever your propensity to lose track of the fact that the body matters because God made it, he values it, he sent his own son to die for it, he is going to resurrection, resurrect it, there is plenty to repent of for both sides of the political and theological spectrum. And second, not only do we need to repent of these things, we need to know God. He says, some have no knowledge of God. <laughs> He's saying, the reason you lost grip on this is you lost knowledge of God. Now, how do we know God? Well, he's going to go on in the next paragraph we'll see in the weeks to come. We know God from Scripture and the church. Look, for the last several decades, there's been so much emphasis in Christian circles especially Christian academic circles, on the human authorship of Scripture, that it has eroded our confidence in the divine authorship of Scripture. We can only know God from the church and Scripture. We have to become more suspicious of our own insights and the insights of our friends and our culture than we are of the Bible. We can be discouraged. We can't escape this. We can wake up from our drunken stupor. We need to repent of the ways that we're sinning because we've lost hold of this. And secondly, we need to know God again. And he gives us his word. And we gather around on Sundays like this to hear his voice. Let's pray.